0: Hey, let's grab our Bibles and turn to 1 Peter chapter 1. First Peter chapter 1. My name is Chris Ward, by the way. I'm one of the pastors on staff here, and uh, it's great to be back with all of you. I haven't been anywhere. I just haven't taught in a while, and so it's great to be here with all of you. And if you were here last weekend, you know that uh, we started a brand new sermon series last weekend called The Good Life Through the Book of First Peter, and we are going to be in the book of First Peter, therefore, for the next several weeks, and we find ourselves in First Peter 1 today. But, Before we get there, as this is Super Bowl Sunday or Super Bowl weekend, I thought it would be fun here this weekend to start out with a little game, okay? But before you get your hopes up, This is not that fun of a game, and it's not that long of a game. In fact, it's only one question. Here's what we're gonna do. We're gonna put three pictures on the screen, really three logos on the screen. Let's go ahead and do that. And I want you to look at these three logos, and I wanna ask you this question, and that is, what do these three logos, what are these three pictures, what do they have in common, huh? What do they have in common? The last time the Bengals were in the Super Bowl? Bowl? What? (laughs) <laughs> what are they They're TV channels there you go yes they are TV channels but they're more than that there's something else that these three uh, uh, networks have in common you know what that is let me tell you what it is okay these three TV networks they are all an example of what is called in the entertainment industry network decay or channel drift, okay? They're an example of network decay or channel drift. And what is that? You see this definition on the screen. This is from Wikipedia. Network decay or channel drift is the gradual shift of a television network away from its original programming as an effort to either target a newer or more profitable audience or to broaden its viewership by including less niche programming, okay? It is the gradual shift of a television network away from its original programming ultimately in order to become more profitable and in order to gain more viewers and that's exactly what's happened to those three channels that I described to you earlier that I shared with you earlier let me let me give you an example of of, of what has happened to each one let's put the first picture on the screen so this is MTV now how many of you here know what the M is and MTV stands for. What does it stand for? Music, right? And why does MTV, why does it actually mean music television? Why? because when it first started, that's what it was. It was music television. It started 40 years ago back in 1981. And it originally started as a channel that all it did was it showed music videos. It was supposed to be like a radio for your television station. And back when MTV first started, you could turn it on at any hour of the day and you would find a music video. Well, I don't know how many of you have watched MTV recently. I probably haven't watched it in about 20 years. But even 20 years ago, if you turned on MTV, you would be hard-pressed to find a single music video. It was all reality programming. It was all scripted programming. And, And what has happened to MTV? It has experienced network decay. It has experienced channel drift. It has drifted away from its original purpose. It's the same thing that has happened with the next channel, the History Channel. Now, do you know when the History Channel first started, do you know what type of programming the History Channel originally had on it? it had history programming. What a novel thought, right? But I used to love the History Channel when I was in high school, because as you all know, I'm a nerd, and I loved history. And back when I was in high school, the History Channel had these serious documentaries about history on it, and I loved watching it. Now, what does the History Channel have on it? Uh, I looked up the schedule this past week, and literally there was one day where all the History Channel was showing that day were two shows. One was Pawn Stars, and the other was the show called American Pickers. And I have no idea what that show is about, but it doesn't sound pleasant, right? And it doesn't sound like it's about history. What has happened to the History Channel? It has experienced network drift. But by far, friends, by far, my favorite example of network drift is this last one, and that is Bravo. Now... Show of hands, realizing that you're not supposed to lie because you're in church. How many of you would confess that you have watched Bravo at some point over the past couple of months? Yeah, quite a number of you. It is a very popular channel, right? Well, in my opinion, Bravo is the most egregious example of channel drift. And that's because, do you know why Bravo was originally created? You know what its original purpose was? Bravo was created about the same time as MTV, and it was originally created as a channel to showcase the arts, particularly live theater. That's why it's called Bravo, get it? Like Bravo in a theater? Bravo! Now what is Bravo known for? It's the channel of female wrestling, right? Because it's the channel of the real desperate housewives of the seven layers of hell. That's all they show these days. I mean, Bravo has so drifted from its original purpose so as to be completely unrecognizable. MTV, the History Channel, Bravo, there are other examples of that as well. But all of these have experienced what is called network drift or channel drift. Now, why do I share that with you here today? Well, the reason that I share that with you is because this tendency for TV stations to drift from their original purpose, just so you know, it's not just something that can happen in television stations. It's also something that can happen, believe it or not, in God's church. It's also something that can happen among God's people. And it is something the Bible tells us that we need to fiercely guard against. And that's exactly what we're going to be talking about here today. Here's my main idea for today's message. If you'd like to take notes, you can write this down. Here's what we're going to be talking about. As set-apart people, we are called to live set-apart lives. As set-apart people, we are called to live set-apart lives. And the reason why that's my main idea for today's message is because that is the main idea of the text we're looking at here today. Today I've been given verses 13 through 21 of 1 Peter chapter one to to cover. And as we begin this passage today, I wanna begin a little bit differently. I actually wanna begin towards the end of this passage. I wanna begin in verse 18. And the reason why is because as I was studying this passage this past week, I realized that what Peter does, especially in verses 18 and 19 of this passage, is he gives us the foundation for the rest of what he says in this section of scripture. And I wanna lay that foundation first here today. So that's what we're going to do. Let's pick it up in verse 18. The Apostle Peter is writing here, and he says this. He says, For you know that it was not with perishable things such as silver or gold that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your ancestors, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. Let me read that again. He says, For you know, That it was not with perishable things, such as silver or gold, that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your ancestors, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. And if you'd like to take notes in your Bible, next to verses 18 and 19, you may want to write the following phrase, and that is this. We are set apart people. We are set apart people because that's the gist of what Peter is saying here. Now why do I say that? How can I say that? Well, let me explain. If you were here last week, and as Matthew introed this series, uh, you would have heard Matthew talk about how the book of 1 Peter was originally written fundamentally to Christians. Okay, it was written to people who put their faith in Jesus Christ. That's what the word elect in verse 1 of 1 Peter chapter 1 shows us. It was written to people like you and me generally, those of us who have put our faith in Jesus. And one of the things that we have to remember about the Christian faith, and the Bible emphasizes this over and over and over again, is brothers and sisters, by putting our faith in Jesus, we get more than just out of hell at the end of time, okay? And I wanna emphasize that because I, I do think there are some Christians who think that. I think there are some Christians who think that the only thing that putting our faith in Jesus does is it gets us this get out of hell free card. Now make no mistake about it, our faith in Jesus absolutely does do that. You know, one of the things that we believe at this church, and I wanna let you know that, and we believe it because the Bible teaches it, we believe that hell is a real place. And we believe at the end of time, hell is gonna be a place of judgment. It's gonna be a place of wrath against people because of their sin. And according to the Bible, the only way that we can escape hell is we have have to put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ. And so our belief in Jesus definitely does save us from hell at the end of time. But according to the Bible, in fact, according to Peter here in this passage, there is something else that our faith in Jesus saves us from. It doesn't just save us from hell at the end of time. You know what else it saves us from? It saves us from the world around us. It saves us from the meaningless lives lived by the world around us. This is exactly what Peter says in the middle of verse 18 when he says this. He says, you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your ancestors. He says, you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your ancestors. And there are two key words in that particular statement there. The first key word is the word empty. Empty. The word empty, the Greek word translated empty there is the Greek word matthias. Matthias. And what's interesting about the Greek word matthias is originally it was a word that was used to refer to babbling, like the babbling of, of babies, the goo-goos and gagas that babies make. And listen, whenever a baby babbles, it's it's really cute, right? I, I loved when all three of my kids started to babble. But although it's really cute when a when a baby babbles, what also is a baby's babble, a babbling, at least to us adults? It, it's meaningless, right? That The sounds that babies make, they, they don't mean anything to us. They're meaningless to our ears. Well, that's what Peter says is the life of someone who hasn't put their faith in Jesus. He says that their life is meaningless. He says that their life is purposeless. As he says here, their life is empty. Now I know that may sound a little bit harsh to us here today. You know, all of us probably in this room, we have people that we know and people that we love who haven't put their faith in Jesus. And many of them seem to be living very full lives. Maybe many of them seem to be doing a lot of good in this life. And so it does seem a little bit harsh, (coughs) excuse me, and a little bit extreme to say that their lives are meaningless, are empty. But you have to understand from the Bible's perspective That's what the Bible says. And the reason why is because someone who doesn't believe in Jesus, by definition, they can't live for Jesus. They can't live to further his purposes. They can't live to further his kingdom, which means when Jesus returns to this earth, everything that they've done will be done away with. Everything that they have done will be lost. They're building with their lives nothing but sandcastles that are going to be washed away with the morning tide. It may sound harsh, but it's what the Bible says, it's true. But that's what leads to the other key word in this passage. And that is the word redeemed. When Peter says this, he says, but you, he says, you were redeemed from the empty way of life, handed down to you from your ancestors. Or as some of your translations say, you were <coughs> excuse me, you were ransomed from the empty way of life, handed down to you from your ancestors. And the Greek word that is translated redeemed or ransomed there, that's a word that Peter borrows from the uh, realm of slavery at this time. Uh, They had slavery in the first century just like we had in our own nation's history. But in the first century, the slavery that was practiced in the Roman Empire was very different than the slavery in our own nation's history. And that's because in the first century, it was much easier for a slave to buy their freedom. And if a slave worked hard enough he could he could buy his freedom and whenever a slave did that he was said to be ransomed from his slavery or he was said to be redeemed from his slavery and that's the word that peter uses here and what peter is telling us here is that when we put our faith in jesus we have been redeemed not just from hell at the end of time in fact there's no mention of hell in this passage at all We have been redeemed not just from hell at the end of time, but we have also been redeemed from the world around us. We have been redeemed from the empty way of life lived by those around us. And I want you to note what Peter says it is that has ultimately bought this redemption, bought this freedom. And what is it? You see it in verse 9. It's not silver, it's not gold, Peter says, but he says that our freedom, our redemption has been bought with the precious blood of Christ. It's been bought, <coughs> excuse me, with the precious blood of Christ. I don't know if you know this, but when Jesus hung on the cross, the, the blood that literally poured out of his body, that was the currency that God used to buy our redemption. That's the currency that God used to buy our salvation. That's what Peter is telling us here. And when you put verses 18 and 19 together here, what you realize that Peter is doing is he sort of drawing a line in the sand. He's making a separation. He's making a distinction. And the separation that Peter is making is a separation between Christians and non-Christians, The separation between those chosen by God because of their faith in Jesus and those who have not been chosen by God. In fact, the picture that Peter really gives us here is a a picture I got an example of, of, of just a few weeks ago. A few weeks ago, my my middle daughter, Madison, turned five, if you can believe it. She's already five. (coughs) Makes me choked up a little bit to say that. And uh, anyway, she turned five. Let me take some water here just for a second. Because she was celebrating her birthday, uh, she was going to get that night, on the night of her birthday, she was going to get a new onslaught of dolls because that's her favorite thing in the world to play with. So all she wants for her birthday is dolls. But from my perspective, there was a problem with the fact that Madison was about ready to get some more dolls. And that is because we have literally run out of room in our house for dolls, okay? I mean, we just have baskets full of dolls. And so that's why in the morning of Madison's birthday, uh, my wife sat Madison down in our playroom. This is before she got any new presents. And one by one, my wife went through every single one of Madison's dolls and asked her one by one, do you still play with this one? Do you still play with this one? Do you still play with this one? It took like 45 minutes to go through every single one. And at the end of that exercise, we had two piles of dolls in our playroom. We had the chosen, and we had the not chosen. We had those that Madison would continue to play with, and we had those that she wouldn't continue to play with. Well, what Peter tells us here in this passage is that's sort of how God views the world. Brothers and sisters, when when you put your faith in Jesus, you need to understand you're not like the world around you anymore. You're different. And that's because when you put your faith in Jesus, not only did God rescue you from hell, but he also rescued you from the world around you. We have been set apart from the rest of the world. We have been given a new identity. We are God's children. We are God's chosen, not just in eternity, but in the here and now as well. That's what Peter says here. We are set apart people. And that's what leads us to what Peter says in the rest of the passage. Because guess what? Now that we have been set apart by God, you know what that means? It means that now we have to live set apart lives. Now that we have been identified as being different from the world around us by God, what that means is that we now have to live different lives. And that's what the rest of this passage is about. If in verses 18 and 19 of this passage, Peter calls us set apart people, what Peter does in verses 13 through 17 is he tells us that we need to live set apart lives. And you may wanna write that next to verses 13 and 17 of this passage. We are to live set apart lives. And if you study verses 13 through 17, as I did this past week, you see that everything that Peter says in those five verses about how we're supposed to live, It can be summed up in one word that is repeated over and over and over again in this passage, and that's the word holy. It's the word holy. In fact, Peter repeats that word four times in these five verses. Actually, Peter repeats that word four times in just two verses. Look with me at verses 15 and 16. Peter says this. He says, but just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do. For it is written, be holy because I am holy. But just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do. For it is written, be holy because I am holy. And you you hear that word over and over and over again. To me, it almost sounds like your alarm clock in the morning. Holy, 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 holy is what Peter says here. In fact, look at the end of verse 15. Look at how strong what Peter says here is. He says this. He says, so be holy in all you do. Literally, that reads, be holy in all your behavior. Be holy in all your conduct. And what Peter seems to be indicating by that is that the key characteristic that should mark us as God's people, as set-apart people, is what? We are to be holy. We are to live holy lives. Be holy in all your conduct, Peter says. But of that, of course, it, it raises a really important question. And what is that question? Well, what does it mean to be holy? What does it look like to live holy lives? Well, this is where I find a lot of Christians are confused. In fact, I think the word holy is one of the most loaded words these days in the Christian faith. And among some Christians, that word holy, it can even bring up negative connotations. Some people, when they hear the word holy, immediately they think of the holier-than-thou people, the self-righteous people, the sanctimonious people, and that's definitely not a good image. Well listen, obviously God wouldn't call us to be like that. So what exactly does Peter mean here when he calls us to be holy? Well, let me give you my new and improved definition for holy, okay? And I call it new and improved because uh, this is actually the third time I have taught this passage in this church. One of them was just a few months ago. And every time I taught this passage, I've given you a definition for holy, and it's always been different. And quite honestly, I've never been satisfied with the definition I've given you, okay? Well, finally this past week, I came up with the definition that I like. And so here's my new and improved definition of holiness. To be holy means to take our example in how to live from God and his word and not from the world around us. To be holy means to take our example in how to live from God and his word and not from the world around us. You see, what I realized this past week that I'd never realized really before in this subject of holiness, is that Peter's call here to be holy, it comes immediately out of our previous conversation. That's why I want to start here in verses 18 and 19. You see, as Peter indicated in verses 18 and 19, the world around us is empty, right? The world around us is, 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 it lives meaningless lives. Well, you and me, because of our faith in Jesus, we have been rescued from the world around us. So if that's the case, should we look to the world around us and how to live? Absolutely not, right? If you were trying to learn how to drive a ship, would you seek out the captain of the Titanic? Of course not. Well, that's what's happening to the world around us. The world around us is headed for a proverbial iceberg. They're doomed. So why would we look to them in how to live? No, who should we look to in how to live? We should look to God. We're set-apart people, so we should live set-apart lives. And that's what it means to be holy. To be holy means to take our example in how to live from God and his word and not from the world around us. And as I said, this concept of holiness, it really is all over this passage. In fact, in the verses around 15 and 16 here, uh, Peter gets very practical with us about what holiness looks like. But before we get there, I do want to pause just for a second here. And I want to talk just for a moment about the importance of holiness. Because this is something that is very passionate to me. Uh, Something I'm very passionate about, rather. And it's something that I think is really important for God's church these days. You know, a few weeks ago, my my eight-year-old son, Lucas, he came to my wife and me uh, because he was having a little bit of a problem. And that is because uh, my wife and I, we have a rule in our family. And the rule is that there's a couple of words that I don't think the rest of the world really thinks are bad words, but my wife and I do. Or at the very least, we think they're kind of crude words. And so we don't say these words ourselves, and we don't allow any of our kids to say these words. Well, recently this has caused a little bit of a problem for Lucas, and that's because all of his friends at school, and listen, he goes to a Christian school, he goes to a friend's Christian school, all of his friends at school, they say these words, and, and his friends' parents allow them to say these words. But because Lucas can't say these words, he's felt left out at times. In fact, he told us that his friends told him that we're bad parents because we don't allow him to say these words. Well, I won't tell you what I think of my son's friend's parents because some of them attend this church. And so, no, we're all good parents, right? Just a difference of opinion. But anyway, this has caused a problem for Lucas. And so a couple of weeks ago, he came up to his mom and me and he said, Listen, everybody at school says these words. He says, Can I please, please, please start saying them? And if you've ever been in a situation like this, you, you know this is a very delicate situation. Because, listen, my my wife and I, we don't want to be unreasonable. We don't want to be overly strict. But at the same time, I do know there's a deeper lesson in all of this. And so in response to my son's request, I said to him something like this. I said, you know, Lucas, whether or not we allow you to say these words, at the end of the day, it's, it's, it's not really that big of a deal. But what I did say is this. You know what, son, I said? I said, one of the biggest lessons that we need to learn in this life is that just because everybody else is doing something, it doesn't make it right. And I said, one of the biggest lessons that we need to learn in this life is just because making a certain decision will get you more friends or get you more accepted, it doesn't mean that it's the right decision to make. And then I said this, and this is the curse of being a pastor's son, but I said this, I said, ultimately, Lucas, we are here on this earth to live for one being, and that is God. And we are here to please Him before we please anybody else. And I said, the sooner that we can can realize that, the sooner that we can learn that, I said, the better off we're going to be. And you know what? That's not just a lesson for my eight-year-old son. That's a lesson for every single one of us. And that's a lesson for God's church. One of the questions that I get asked a lot these days Is is Some of you will come up to me and you'll say, Pastor Chris, aren't you you concerned about the direction the world is headed in? Aren't you concerned about all that is going on in the world right now? And I'll be honest with you. My answer to that question is no. I'm not concerned. At least I'm not as concerned as as some Christians seem to be. Now, don't misunderstand me. I, I care about what's going on in the world, but I'm not concerned about it. And the reason why is because all the world is doing right now is it's acting exactly like the Bible says the world is going to act. I mean, we saw it in verse 18, right? The people around us live empty lives. And that's what we're seeing right now. So I don't get concerned when the world acts like the world any more than I get concerned when my cat acts like a cat. My cat is supposed to act like a cat. That's what cats do. But I'll tell you where I would get concerned. Where I would get concerned is if I came home one day and I started to see my kids act like cats. If I started to see my kids eat out of the cat bowl or use the litter box, then I would start to get really concerned. And that's more along the lines of what I'm concerned about these days. You know, for for too many years, the the church in America especially, um, it took too seriously the concept of Holiness. And I know that may sound like a really weird statement, but it's true. And what I mean by that is for years, the the church in America and this desire to be set apart, what began to happen is they created all these rules that the Bible doesn't talk about and said, this is the way you need to be holy. This is the way that you need to be set apart. And that's why in my grandparents' generation, especially in older, you had all these Christians who believed that a Christian shouldn't dance and a Christian shouldn't go to movies and a Christian shouldn't play cards and a Christian shouldn't wear makeup and so on. And what began to happen is there was this legalism that existed in the church. And all these rules of men got passed off as the rules of God, all under the guise of holiness. And people would judge anybody who didn't live the same way that they did. Well, thankfully, we have moved away from that. I mean, by and large, I think the church these days have rejected the rules that the Bible doesn't talk about. And you know what? That's a really good thing. But where I get concerned a little bit these days is I'm afraid that some among God's people have moved a little bit too far in that other direction. You see, it's one thing to reject those things that the Bible never talks about. That's okay. It's another thing to reject those practices that the Bible does speak clearly on. That's not okay. But that's what I've seen more and more of these days that as the world out there drifts further and further away, I am seeing this desire among Christians to sort of want to go with it, to to want to fit in, and to allow the world to influence how we think, what we do, what we say. And and in the process, I fear that we have forgotten about the importance of holiness. We've forgotten about the importance of living set-apart lives. We've forgotten that we are here to please God and Him alone. This is what you're seeing, for example, in the shifting views in the church about sex and sexuality. You know, I get in trouble every time I talk about this. In fact, every weekend I talk about this, there's usually at least one person who walks out on me. But you know what? I'm not here to please people. I'm here to declare God's truth. And God's word is very clear on this. And by the way, Christians for all but the last few decades have been united on this and clear on this. And that is that sexual intimacy is only permitted by God, by one man and one woman in a marriage relationship. And anything outside of that is not holiness in regards to sexual intimacy. Anything outside of that is sin. Is it sin that can be forgiven? Absolutely it is. But it's sin nonetheless. And I don't care how unpopular that teaching makes us in in this day and age. I don't care if one day I get arrested for teaching that. I'm not here to please men. I'm here to please God. We all are to be. And we can't allow the world to dictate what we think or what we believe. But I'll tell you what, this, the changing views on, on sex and sexuality is not the only shift that I see occurring in, in God's church these days. There are other ones as well. One of the biggest ones is, is in the area of speech. And I get really concerned about how I, I think we Christians have forgotten what holiness looks like in regards to how we talk and how we respond to one another. We've forgotten what James tells us in James chapter 1 verses 19 and 20 when he says this. He says, my dear brothers and sisters, take note of this. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry because human anger does not produce the righteousness that God desires. Talk about a couple of verses for our day and age. Talk about a forgotten couple of verses in our day and age. You see, the main concern that I have today is not the drift of the world out there. The main concern that I have today is the drift among God's people. Just like MTV drifted from its original purpose to provide music television, just like Bravo and the History Channel drifted from their original purpose to provide educational and enlightening programming, so I fear that the church these days runs the risk of drifting from their purpose to to live differently, to live set-apart lives as set-apart people, to be holy as God is holy. And do you know what one of the saddest things about this is? We're the ones missing out. We are. You know, I find it so ironic that so many Christians these days want to be like the world around them, as though the world around us right now is so happy right now. Those of you who watch the news, let me ask you a question. Does the world around us look really happy these days? No, they're miserable, right? In fact, I just came across an article this past week that talked about how unhappy people are these days. The world around us is miserable, and when we try to live like them, guess what? we're miserable too. You see, contrary to what Satan tries to whisper in our ear, holiness does not lead to the bad life, the boring life. No, holiness leads to the good life. Holiness leads to true happiness. And you know where holiness begins? It begins with each one of us individually. It begins with each of us taking seriously this call to live holy lives. And as I said, that's what the the rest of this passage is is all about. And very, very quickly here, because I'm running out of time, I want to give you a few practical things that Peter says about holiness here. The first one is this. He says that to be holy (coughs) is to be self-controlled. To be holy is to be self-controlled. This is what you see in verse 13 when Peter says this. He says, therefore, with minds that are alert and fully sober. And the key word there is the word sober. And the word sober there literally means sobriety from alcohol. Not in that Christians are not able to drink alcohol. I don't think the Bible teaches that. But that Christians are not supposed to get drunk. And that the Bible does very clearly teach. That's what holiness looks like in regards to alcohol. We're not to get drunk. But a lot of scholars believe that when Peter uses this word here, he means more than just sobriety from alcohol. He means self-control in general. And I think that's true because self-control is one of the fruit of the Spirit. And that's what it looks like to be set apart. As the world around us goes out of control, we are to be self-controlled. Holiness looks like, for example, resisting gossip at work or among our friends. Holiness looks like resisting flying off the handle when we get bad news, either flying off the handle in anxiety or flying off the handle in anger. And holiness looks like resisting impulsivity in how we spend our money. To be holy means to be self-controlled. That's the first thing. Second thing that Peter says is this. He says to be holy is to listen to God before we listen to anyone else. To be holy is to listen to God before we listen to anyone else. That's what you see in verse 14 when Peter calls us obedient children. And the Greek word that is translated obedient there has as its root the word to listen. To be holy means to pay attention, to listen to God before we listen to anyone else. And that's so important in our day and age. As our world drifts further and further away from God, as we said, right? There are going to be more and more voices that are trying to tell us to live differently. And we need to resist those voices. And we need to pay attention to God's voice above all others. That's what holiness looks like. And then finally, holiness means to seek God's approval before we seek anyone else's. It means to seek God's approval before we seek anybody else's. This is what Peter says in verse 17 when he says, Since you call on a father who judges each person's work impartially, live out your time as foreigners here in reverent fear. And I know that may seem like a scary verse to us. But what Peter is saying here is exactly what I said to my son Lucas. Listen, we know something as Christians that the rest of the world doesn't know. We know that every single person who lives on this earth one day is going to have to stand before God and God is going to examine our life and at the end of time his opinion of us is the only opinion that matters. And so we are to live in light of that moment. We are to seek his approval above all else. That's really what it means in the Bible to fear God. And that's what holiness looks like. It means to seek approval, God's approval, before anyone else's. Let me ask you, is there an area of your life where you're trying to seek the approval of another person over God? Is there an era of your life where you're going outside of what you know the Word of God says in order to seek the approval of a boyfriend or girlfriend or a boss or a family member, someone who is ultimately not set apart like we are? Why would we do that? Why do we do that? Why do we try and seek the approval of those who are ultimately living empty, meaningless lives? It doesn't make sense. And it's not what holiness looks like. That's what holiness is. And listen, this is hard, okay? It can be hard at times. And I'll tell you what, it's going to get harder. Is our world just further and further away from God? We're going to hear more and more of those voices, and it's going to be so hard not to give in. And you know what? We're not going to do it perfectly all the time. And that's why, thank God, He forgives us for when we fail. It's hard, but it's important. And that's why I want to let you know we're not just devoting one week to this subject. We're really devoting two weeks to this subject. As you heard earlier, next weekend's going to be a really special weekend here at Friends Church. And that's because we're going to have an incredible guest speaker, and he's going to be here in our weekend services. And that's Dr. Ed Stetzer. And and Dr. Ed Stetzer, he is really probably one of the wisest voices right now in Christianity, in the church in America especially. And next weekend, he's going to be speaking at all three of our weekend services, and he's going to talk about how to live as ambassadors, as representatives for Christ in a changing world. And so it's going to be right on this theme of holiness. And then after he speaks at the weekend services, next Sunday night, as you heard, at 6.30 p.m. in the pavilion, he's going to be back with us again, and he's going to give another talk. And I believe his talk on Sunday night is going to be how to live as Christians in a world of outrage, And how to avoid the the anger that we see all around us. And at that event, we're going to get the opportunity to ask him questions. And I know it's going to be an enriching time. So I would encourage you, not only do you need to come back next weekend, both to our services and to the Sunday night event, but you need to invite someone as well, because I know you're going to get a lot out of it. And as I said, in many ways, it is going to be a continuation of what we're talking about here today. But as we wrap up things here today, Men and women, I I don't want you to miss the good news in what I'm talking about. You know, I know when you talk about holiness, it can feel like a serious subject. And in many ways, it is a serious subject. But but there's also a really tremendous reward associated with it, too. You know, as I've shared with you several times, and you can tell how much it's affecting me because I continue to share it with you. I have recently turned 40, okay? And now that I'm 40, I, I have noticed something a little bit interesting. And that is, although I am very firmly in midlife, right? I got a family of my own, wife, three kids, that whole deal. One of the things I've noticed, even at the age of 40, is I noticed how much my dad's uh, approval still means to me. I've noticed how much my dad's opinion still means to me. In fact, I'll be perfectly honest with you at the end of a weekend, When I get a text from my dad that says, hey, good job this weekend, good sermon this weekend, that's worth like a hundred emails from all of you, okay? It really is. There is still something about me, I don't know, my dad's opinion, it just means a lot to me. And you know what? I don't think I'm alone in that. I think there is something inherent within us that wants and seeks the approval of our father. Well, tell you what, as much as a text from my dad means to me, I know it's gonna absolutely pale in comparison to that day when I stand before my Heavenly Father and I hear those words that every child of God longs to hear. And that's, well done, good and faithful servant. Well done, good and faithful servant. Don't you wanna hear those words? Men and women, a commitment to what we're talking about here today That's what that gets us. I don't know if you know this, but the Bible tells us that when we stand before God at the end of time, if we have put our faith in Jesus, you know what God is gonna do? 1 Corinthians chapter four, verse five tells us this. If we have put our faith in Jesus, what we're told God is gonna do is God is going to praise us. Not we're gonna praise God, though we will do that, but God is gonna praise us. God's going to praise us simply for doing what he has asked us to do. And I promise you, nothing is going to compare to that moment. No temporary satisfaction we receive uh, from anything on this earth is going to compare to that moment when we receive praise from God. And that's what we are to live our lives in light of. It's what I said to my son, Lucas. The most important thing that we can do in this life is to live for God. And the sooner we can realize that, the better off we'll be. We are set apart people, men and women. We have been set apart by God himself. We have been chosen by God himself. So let's live set apart lives and let's experience the good life that comes with that. Amen? Amen. Will you bow your heads with me, please? Father God, um, God, we come before you here today, Lord. And we thank you, Father, We thank you that you have chosen us. We thank you that you have redeemed us. We thank you that you sent your son Jesus and through his shed blood on the cross, you have saved us, not just from judgment at the end of time, but you've also saved us to live a different life in the here and now, a life that I believe ultimately leads to true joy and satisfaction. As your son says, I have come that they may have life and have it to the full, God. And that's what I believe a commitment to holiness brings us. And so, Father, I pray for each one of us here in this room, God. I pray that we would take here what we heard here today from your word, Father, and that you would apply it to our hearts. And God, we would, we would have a commitment to live out this life of holiness, Lord. I pray, God, that you have spoken to each and every one of us here today of an area where you want to come alongside us through the power of your Holy Spirit, and you want to help us live this out more, Father. And I pray that we would, we would depend upon your Spirit, and we would do that, God. And Father, I pray that no matter what happens to us, no matter what is going on around us, God, we would set our eyes on Jesus, Father. And we would set our eyes on that moment when we get to stand before you, Lord. And you will praise us simply for doing what you have asked us to do, God. And so, Father, we thank you for that. And so, God, I pray that we would come out of this message encouraged and inspired to live the life that you have called us to and experience the joy that comes with that, Father. We love you. God, we thank you. And all of this we ask in the powerful name of your Son, Jesus. Amen.